Hello, and welcome to a pandemic version of the Evolution Medicine Podcast. As always, I am your host, Joe Alcock. This will be a solo entry today, and I just wanted to record a few thoughts about the pandemic. We are at a particularly interesting phase of the pandemic here uh, this day, which is May 1st of 2020, with various states reopening. So recently, a company known as Regeneron, they sponsored a drug called Kevzara. Kevzara blocks interleukin-6, a pro-inflammatory cytokine, a signaling molecule that ramps up uh, inflammation and inflammatory responses. And this was proposed along with other IL-6 blocking drugs. The idea here is that we can improve outcomes by blocking or downregulating an inflammatory response in our patients with COVID-19. This might seem very plausible. We know that inflammation is responsible for some of the damage that we see in these patients with acute uh, respiratory distress syndrome or ARDS that exacerbate the difficulty that we have in oxygenating these patients and end up putting some people on ventilators. Uh, we also know that there's evidence of inflammation in a variety of tissues that seems to be linked with organ failure in our patients with COVID-19. Those give a bioplausible rationale for using medicines like Kevzara to block IL-6. Uh, but for listeners of this podcast and readers of the Evolution Medicine blog, you'll know that this has been something that I have returned to over many, many years. And the contention that I will suggest is that so far in critical illness and during infection, we can't find any evidence that immunomodulatory medications have worked, maybe ever. So I've talked about the example of Zygris or activated protein C technically recombinant activated protein C. I'm going to call it Zygris. It was so named by the company Eli Lilly that sponsored it. And Zygris, just to recap briefly, is a medication that was FDA approved on the basis of some questionable evidence in a single trial back in 2001. The FDA approved it on a split vote. This medication was thought to do a couple of things. It was thought to restore normal blood clotting and it also downregulated inflammation. So it was an anti-inflammatory agent. So it's approved. It was on the market for about 10 years. And then in 2012, after many, many trials, a lot of spilled ink, a huge amount of patients subjected to this medication, either therapeutically or as part of an experimental protocol, a final, well-designed, large-scale, multi-center trial that looked at Zygris in patients with septic shock and severe disease showed that it didn't work. It was useless. And then meta-analysis, when you put all the data together, it really gave a pretty strong signal for harm. Increased bleeding events, even an increased likelihood of serious uh, outcomes, including death with this medication. So the medication just simply never worked. And that was our best case. A medication designed to improve outcomes by down-regulating inflammation, by restoring normal blood flow, by reversing hemostasis, this idea that we fetishize normalcy in our patients in the ICU and that we do a whole variety of different interventions to try to bring our patients back to the normal state. It didn't work in this case in Zygris. There are a variety of other instances in which it didn't work, and I will include some of those in the show notes. I was prompted to record this episode because our good friend, the Surviving Sepsis Campaign, You'll recall that the Surviving Sepsis campaign began as a marketing arm of the company Eli Lilly that sponsored our favorite drug, 
Zygris. So it really was a marketing ploy to sell more Zygris to physicians like me or to encourage people like me to prescribe it to my patients, despite the fact that it was a very expensive medication that didn't work ultimately. Surviving sepsis, after some mini scandals, shed its connection with Eli Lilly. But the organization continues today and makes recommendations for how we should treat our patients with critical illness and sepsis. And now they came out with a position paper about what we should do with our patients with COVID-19, who, as we know, they're often critically ill and they can get very, very sick. So I would say if you look through the, the majority of their recommendations, most of them are spot on. And at least when they make questionable recommendations, they do acknowledge that the quality of the evidence is weak. But in general, they do things like they say that a, a conservative fluid resuscitation strategy is better than a liberal one. So in other words, we shouldn't be giving lots of fluids, that we should try things like high flow oxygenation, that there isn't great evidence so far for using things like antibody therapy for uh, COVID-19. But one thing that really jumped out at me, they suggest that we use acetaminophen, aka Tylenol, in our patients with COVID-19. Um, in the rationale section, they enumerate the evidence that shows that, in fact, using Tylenol doesn't make people better. There's no the overall outcomes, however we want to measure those, are not improved by patients taking Tylenol. There's no survival benefit again for this medication. Uh, so they say the quality of the evidence for the suggestion that we use Tylenol to treat fever is weak. I would say it's actually non-existent or it's damn near non-existent. My argument, supported by a great deal of evidence, is that in general, we should just let fever do its thing. Fever does not require treatment. It certainly should not prompt a knee-jerk reaction. I am asked by nurses in my workplace frequently, not every shift, but certainly maybe once a week, hey, your patient has a fever, doctor. Can I go ahead and give them a gram of Tylenol? I always go back and I show them the evidence. Here's the evidence for fever. Fever is a conserved evolutionary response. It's a host defense. It's part of the acute phase response. It's linked with a coordinated suite of other physiologic changes that result in findings and symptoms that we can see in our patients, all of which have evolved via natural selection because they improve survival from infection. We can see evidence of this. We see evidence that fever is useful most strongly and most vividly. We use animal models where we can control body temperature in a, a cold-blooded animal. So for instance, zebrafish that are subjected to viral infection, if you keep them in slightly cooler water, maybe the water that they would prefer otherwise, they have 100% or near 100% mortality. If you keep them in warmer water, they do fine. You give the fish the option to swim to warmer water, they'll do it and they will survive. So they have a behavioral fever. There are iguanid lizards that have been tested ex extensively. The first paper done by Matthew Kluger showed this. Senegalese grasshoppers have a behavioral fever also, as do honeybees that vibrate their wings and have a what looks very much like a shivering thermogenesis in an infection called chalk brood. And they can resist this fungal infection if they can raise the temperature of the colony. So there's great animal evidence. There was a recent meta-analysis where we looked at uh, survival of mice and baby chickens after they were inoculated with influenza, either A or B. Uh, this looked at fever reduction either by Tylenol or ibuprofen, and the meta-analysis by Ayers and colleagues showed that there was a statistically significant increase in mortality among these experimental animals that were treated with Tylenol or ibuprofen. So that's, that's some evidence from non-human animals. What about humans? Evidence from large-scale observational trials 
and there have been a variety. Uh, Paul Young out of Wellington, New Zealand, has been responsible for several of these. Additional studies that have been done in Sweden, in other Scandinavian countries, in the United States, as well as Australasia. These studies involving many thousands of patients show that if you're sick, if you're diagnosed with sepsis, if you have an if you have a underlying infection and you present to the emergency department for care, the higher your temperature, the lower the chance that you're going to die. I show trainees these data that are very compelling and they look just about exactly like the experimental evidence in lizards or in fish that show that hey, higher temperatures in these studies are linked with better outcomes. We don't have to rely on that. There was a New England Journal study uh, that examined ibuprofen. Bernard uh, and colleagues um, showed that uh, patients randomized to ibuprofen didn't do better. Uh, they did, um, they, the survival was not positively impacted. Um, it didn't kill them either, but ibuprofen did not help patients who were septic. The HEAT trial done by Paul Young and colleagues, again published in the New England Journal, uh, showed no benefit to Tylenol. And then meta-analyses of either aggressive versus standard thermal management. So aggressive, effort, aggressive efforts to reduce body temperature in these patients does not make them better. Two studies where patients were made therapeutically hypothermic using mechanical means, one involving meningitis and then one for those with sepsis, um, patients died more often. So if we cool people off, cooler than normal, we kill them. If we treat them with ibuprofen or Tylenol, at best, we do nothing good for them. So why is there this need, we think, to give Tylenol or ibuprofen? And why would surviving sepsis recommend as a suggestion that this be given for patients with COVID-19? With our existing data, again, these are animal data using our favorite stand-in, the mouse, looking at a viral illness like influenza, that suggests that we don't make patients better when we give them ibuprofen or Tylenol. There's been many, many now large-scale randomized controlled trials, none of which, if you look at them in the composite, show a improved outcome. We don't discharge more patients if they're given Tylenol. And yet, I will tell you right now, with the thousands of patients with COVID-19, many of them are receiving these medications right now. What do you think of that? I think that, in general, if something seems like it's an evolutionarily conserved response and it evolved uh, to protect organisms, hosts, multi-celled creatures, either invertebrates or vertebrates, uh, either cold-blooded or warm-blooded, the evidence in total should be that we should not intervene for fever. There's no point in it. We're not going to make patients better. I think we can say that with a, with a strong degree of certainty, that we're not going to improve outcomes. Um, and that's not even getting into some of the issues with ibuprofen affecting uh, ACE2 receptor expression in animals. That was a suggested reason to not give that uh, medication, which has been a object of controversy. You know what? Hey, enough about ibuprofen. My advice, don't give it. We can draw upon both existing evidence as well as evidence from evolutionary logic to suggest that this is a medication that we should not use. All right, moving on. Let's, get, let's circle back to our IL-6 antagonists by using monoclonal antibodies such as Kesvara. There are multiple, multiple examples of monoclonal antibodies that have been aimed at the inflammatory response, and these haven't worked. 
So again, you don't need to be a genius to make a prediction about whether these medications like Kevzar are going to work. And it looks like Kevzar does not work, by the way. You can just simply look at the history of trials in other settings where these medications have been used. It's very curious that there remains such enthusiasm for these medicines when they have such a thin track record of success. I would argue non-existent track record of success. It's not for lack of trying. People have tried well over a hundred different interventions in randomized controlled trials involving humans, uh, as enumerated by John Marshall in his 2014 uh, Trends in Molecular Medicine paper. Well over a hundred trials have tried immunotherapeutic manipulation in patients with infectious disease, and we've not seen a benefit overall, no benefit. This is not a strategy that works. The idea that we're gonna come upon the infection and the one immunomodulator that's gonna magically work, I think that that is magical thinking, quite frankly. The other part is just like fever is an evolved response, innate immunity is also an evolved response. And just because there are critically ill patients in whom these innate immune responses seem to participate in the pathological process. That does not mean that blocking those pathways is going to improve outcomes. For most people, having an intact innate immunity benefits you. For most people infected with COVID-19, having an innate immune response that is unimpaired is going to be linked with better outcomes. The logic is very similar to that of fever. Pro-inflammatory cytokines are involved in the process of fever itself. These kinds of interventions are part of a tapestry of similar interventions that have been tried in critical illness. Uh, the logic is very similar to the logic of treating fever. The evolutionary implications are very similar. We should not expect a great deal of success by interfering with evolved responses. That might seem like a leap of logic in and of itself, but it's one which is supported by the evidence far more than the opposite. There are a variety of additional medications that aim to downregulate IL-6. Will they work? I'm going to predict right here that they are not going to work. We're not going to see any evidence of benefit from these medications. Time will tell, and we will certainly revisit this topic in future episodes. Be safe, wear a mask, wash your hands. I'm actually in favor of some limited opening of the economy, as long as people at the same time are smart about it. So I'm going to recommend you be smart too. And until next time, this is Joe Alcock for the Evolution Medicine Podcast.